We're joined once again by Hall of Fame tennis writer Steve Flink. His latest book is Pete Sampras Greatness Revisited. You can catch his work on tennis.com. Just just came back from Newport, I believe, uh, the Hall of Fame ceremony. Uh, you got a lot of camera time there, Steve. I was glad to see you. Uh, I was glad to see you there. How was it? No, as, as usual, just a very festive weekend. And they've changed the set. It was a, it was a new uh, setting, not on the big stadium court, but behind there, facing back toward the entrance of the museum. It was very elegant and a little bit more intimate than in the past. So it was very enjoyable and nice to see Conchita Martinez and Goran Ivanisevic accept their honors so humbly and then to watch the original nine come in and get their glory that so richly deserved and and Dennis Vandermeer, you know, who passed away, but his wife was there to accept from. So it was a, it was a pretty, it was a beautifully staged ceremony. I'm glad I was there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so a little bit later than normal, but uh, we are going back to Wimbledon, uh, re rewinding uh, about to, to about a week ago. And uh, I want to start with Novak Djokovic and Wimbledon 2021 will always be the, the major that he tied it up at 20. And there might be more chapters to be written in this uh, great slam race that we've witnessed over the last couple of decades. But for now, it's 2020-20. Novak Djokovic's win over Berrettini in the final gives him uh, that tying uh, marker. What is unique, in your opinion, about Novak's path to this point? Because now they're all at the same number. Well, what's the most interesting part of it is to see how far behind he was, both Rafa and Novak, what a climb it was, how unlikely it seemed at one time, even as recently as 17, 2017, when, when, when Rafa was trying to close the gap on Roger and everybody thought that the Australian final that year was so critical because it was, it was, it was going to be pendulum swinging, Rafa get within two or Roger extend to a four slam lead all of that going on but meantime Djokovic comes back and starting the middle of 18 and he takes the last two of 18 two in 19 one in 20 and three more this year eight eight titles to make the tie you know he'd been at 12 so I mean that to me is what's so remarkable about it the way he has kept capturing them in clusters and now on possibly on the verge of a grand slam to become the first since Rod Laver to do so truly remarkable that's right. Eight out of the last 12 majors have gone to Djokovic. Yeah. There, there's some thought that, that he wasn't even playing his best tennis throughout this fortnight, uh, despite the fact that he only dropped two sets. Do, do you think that's accurate? I do. I do. I mean, I just think that's partly he did have a nice draw. Let's face it. Yeah. It was really a comfortable draw right up really until Shapovalov in the, uh, uh, you know, he plays a Fusevich in the quarters. It was a nice draw, no doubt about it. He didn't have to play Rublev, who potentially on a given day could give him some trouble with all that power. I couldn't have seen him beating him, but it was going to be a test and he didn't get it. So yeah, it was a pretty, he lost his first set of the tournament to the young British wild card. And, and uh, I, then that was no big deal. And he raced into the semis. And, and so part of it was that part of it was the draw. And then, you know, I think he was a bit tight against Shapovalov and understandably because Dennis came out firing on all cylinders, served brilliantly, great left-handed serve, explosive off the ground, keeping his errors to a minimum, those first couple of sets especially. But again, Djokovic on the big points, delivering and coming through under pressure beautifully to win six, five and five. And then, 
And then the final, of course, where he had to come from a set down. No, I didn't feel like there were times in the final and, and there are times in the third set against Shapovalov where I thought maybe he played his best. But that's what I think has to be so encouraging to him. I'm sure in the private conversations with between uh, Novak and Gorin and, and uh, Marion Vida that they all agree that he can play better. But w- that would fuel anybody with confidence to think that he, he... And same with the French. He wasn't at his very best at the French. He played that phenomenal third set against Nadal. It was a great win. Came from two sets down against Musetti. Came from two sets down against Tsitsipas. That's not the very best of Novak, but it's a, it's a supreme competitor. So I just get the feeling now, okay, here's what I think, Gil. That was the clay in Paris. It's not his best surface, but he's still a great clay court player. Great grass court player, obviously winning six Wimbledons now, but is it his best surface? I still would say hard courts is his best surface. Oddly, he's only won three U.S. Opens. I say only three U.S. Okay. Opens out of eight finals, Gil. And, you know, one of those was to Roger back in 07. And then he uh, he lost to Rafa in the 2010 final to Andy Murray a little bit surprisingly in the 2012 a five set final to Rafa again in 13, and then he lost one more final to Stan Wawrinka in 16. Meantime, he managed to win his titles in 2011 uh, over Rafa, 2015 over Roger, and finally 2018 over Delpo. So is that really? Is that record indicative of how great Novak is on hard courts? I don't think so when we look at nine Australian titles. So that's what I think has to be in the back of his mind, this feeling like, okay, I'm kind of overdue to play my best in New York. I know I'm at my very best on hard courts. I know I've built up this kind of psychological capital over the other players because I've dominated the majors this year. And I I just feel like that's where he may well peak as long as he's not too worn out from the Olympics. That's the only question I have. Psychologically, emotionally, not physically, because those matches will be best of three. I'm assuming, have you heard? I'm assuming the final is still best of five, but the best of three all the way through. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, can't, I can't say for sure either way. That would be my assumption, though. And that's what they did in 12, and that's what they've yeah. done the last couple of times. So he may be okay. able to get through some straight set matches and not take too much out of himself, two set matches, along the way before the final in Tokyo, if he, assuming he gets there, and then maybe it's a little more rigorous in the finals. Well, the question is going to be, does he have the emotional energy left to come back up and get, he would have already won three majors plus a gold medal if that happened. Yeah. And, then, and then let's say he doesn't win the Olympics. Can, will he accept the setback and come to New York? I do believe that certainly is the case. I don't really worry about that at, at that stage. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how he responds, Gil, to the, added challenge of throwing the Olympics into the mix in the middle of summer amidst all of these Grand Slam tournaments. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, and especially if you contrast that, compare it to Nadal's decision to sit out Wimbledon in the Olympics, when you when you think about how different these guys are right now in their, in their mindsets and how much tennis they're willing to play, it's very stark. Uh, I have two thoughts on, on the Open. Um, which is one, and we might get into this later. And by the way, we'll get back to the, to the final, but um, I think while Novak is better on hard, there are more contenders, more players who feel comfortable on hard courts on grass. I think he gets the benefit of being much more comfortable on the surface compared to some of the rivals that I think don't feel good at some of his rivals just don't feel good on grass. And then I think compared to Australia, it's just a little bit less advantageous for him when it comes to the height of the bounce and the speed of the court. 
I think it plays a little bit closer to Clay. But ultimately, I do agree with you that when you look at his record in the finals, uh, he should have more U.S. Opens than he does. Yeah, I think it's that's a fair point about the bounce. I do feel it's more the time of the year, and sometimes he's been a bit worn out for whatever the reasons. And it is tough on everybody by then. They've all played a lot. And then this year, throw the Olympics in, and you've got something extra. But, yeah, I just feel like he hasn't done himself justice. I still think he's he's phenomenal at his best on any hard court. And, and it's time, if ever he was going to bring out his best, and the, 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 time, the, the time is now. And... It'll, it'll just be very interesting to see. And, and somehow I feel like, the, I don't know why I feel this way. I feel like the biggest tension in a way was Wimbledon. He knew he was halfway there and there he is at Wimbledon, you know, with a, some, a tenth semifinal and having to come back, back from a set down in the finals. And, and I feel like there was a sense of real relief when that was done and, and, a, and a sense now that, you know what, I'm here, I'm on the verge of it. I can, I can do this and I'm going to do this. It was reflected a bit in his post-match comment about him, that we, how you know he wasn't going to stop now, and he didn't mean that arrogantly, but I think it meant that you know it, it was great self-assurance and deep inner confidence that he was displaying there. That's the reason why I don't I don't think Djokovic reached his his peak form, um, and maybe if he needed it, he would have found it. It's very possible. I mean, tennis is it's such a push and pull between you and your opponent that uh, you know. It, it's not, it's not, you can't really take anything away. The goal is to win and Djokovic not only won, but did so pretty comfortably in all of his matches. But I, I thought it was just the pressure, uh, the feeling, the, the weight of the history yeah. on his shoulders. Yeah. That's why I think it was tough for him at times to find, uh, you know, to really hit out and find his offensive baseline game against uh, Berrettini and Chapeval. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And I think, frankly, there was more opportunity to to uh, put it on display against Berrettini. Dennis was was hitting so hard off both sides. You can always get to Berrettini's backhand and, how, and it's not a breather, but you're not going to get the same explosive power he has off the off the forehand and he slices a lot of his backhand and the drive is not that great. So you had a weaker side to go to with Dennis. You didn't. And it, it, it's maybe it was even a little bit more unnerving, but I agree. It was the weight of history that was was on his mind and he was trying his best to deal with it. The other thing, Gil, is that in the case of the Berrettini match, it's different with Shapovalov because Novak was able to squeeze the first set out after Shapovalov served at 5-4-30 all and missed the open court forehand after a great defensive stab from Djokovic. So that set that would have, he still managed to win that set in the tie break, but it, he could never relax because Shapovalov had so many break chances all through the second. And it wasn't until and Novak got that two-set lead that I think he really felt he had him, and eventually he got the break at five on the third. In the final, very different. He's playing Berrettini. He's up. He, he's nervous his first two service games. Two doubles in his first service game, down break point, another double in his third game. He was tight, but he got through those. And then from two, from that point up until 5-2, and then a long, I believe, eight-deuce game, marathon game on Berrettini's serve, which included a set point for Novak. He, he looked like he was going to win the set very decisively. And I think had that been the case, even if he had served it out at 5-3, which he didn't, then he might have relaxed and we might have seen more of his best tennis. But when you're suddenly, when you're finding yourself down a set after having been up 5-2 with a set point, and that's what happened. He got outplayed in the tiebreak in the first set by Berrettini. Then that does create a certain tension. He did relax for a while. Uh, he played some really good tennis on his way to 4-11 the second, but even then, Berrettini 
from 5-1 down, closed the gap to 5-4. He broke back when, when Novak served the first time for the set. And then Berrettini at 3-5 had that remarkable hold from left 40, triple set point down. Made Novak serve it out a second time, and then Novak had a terrific love game on his serve to close out that second. Then I felt he did, he was a little less tense after that, Gil. I think when he got Agreed. to one at all, right? I think at that point, he felt like, okay, this is my match now, and enough of this. I shouldn't have lost the first set. I should have closed the second set sooner. Now I'm in control. And he pretty much was. But I would say this, Gil. To me, the best tennis Djokovic played was from 2-3, love 30 down in, in, the, in the fourth set. Because Berrettini had served a couple of really good games up to that point. Then he presses him to love 30. Novak gets a good serve to make it 15-30. And then they had the, what was for Novak the point of the match, where he where Berrettini hit that vicious slice backhand down the line. Probably nobody else would have gotten it back. Novak scooped it back deep down the middle. But still, Berrettini ripped that forehand into Novak's backhand corner. And again... Nobody would have gotten that ball back. Somehow Novak on the stretch gets the two-hander back fairly low cross court. Berrettini tries that little drop shot and Novak scampers in and, and somehow shovels the ball by Berrettini and then raises his arms to the crowd because I think he felt at that moment, okay, this is it. That was, that was, a, that was a crucial moment. I could have been down two break points. Now in 30-all, he holds. And I felt like from there, holding for three-all and then running out the last three games, breaking a second time, he he hit out a bit more freely because you're right up until then there'd been a sense of a little bit of holding back a little bit and not making too many, not making bad errors, but not hitting out freely, especially off his forehand where he really likes to let loose. And that wasn't happening until I think the latter stages of the fourth. And I think it's a credit to his, to his ability. You know, the fact that he wasn't making a lot of bad errors is, is obviously key and so many players in the same position. That's the result which is right. a, a more catastrophic result than what you have for Novak, which is just not uh, not creating quite as much deadly offense from the back of the court. Right. right. He relied more on his defense, and it, and it still worked. But yeah. you're, listen, I just get the feeling that, uh, depending on how, we, how things unfold those first few rounds, we might see his best Grand Slam tennis of the season in New York. Just somehow, I mean, first of all, he knows – this opportunity will never come his way again, as great as he is. He cannot expect to go out next year and win the first three and have another shot at it if that's what it is required. So I just think that that, that tunnel vision and that deep drive and motivation to, to make history and knowing that he could, you know, what a monumental opportunity this is, that that, that could actually work in his favor if he can if, if he can get off to a good start in the tournament and, you know, find his range early and start recording some, some decisive wins in the early rounds and then start peaking from the, say the round of 16 quarterfinals on. Yeah. Well, why do you think he's able to, to win so often? I think we were having similar discussions after Wimbledon 2019, the final with Federer, where I think everyone kind of felt like Roger was putting on the majority of the pressure applying the majority of the pressure throughout the match and for long stretches seemed to be the more comfortable player, but obviously it's Djokovic lifting the trophy at the end of that one. And I think we have in, in somewhat similar ways, we see this, the same things in, in 21 where nobody is quite good enough like Federer was to actually push Djokovic to a point where he was having to save match points. But we've seen just throughout this last stretch that sometimes 
Novak can win with his B game and his C game and not just win in the first, second, third round, can win at the end of these majors. Why do you think he's able to do that? I think he just knows how good his defense is, for one thing. And, 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 he, and he trusts himself to not beat himself and, and, and feels like, okay, if, I have to, if that's the way I have to do it, if that's going to be the, the recipe on this day and I don't have the belief in my bigger shots, I'm not hitting out freely, I'm not rifling forehand winners into the corners, then this is how I'm going to do it. And I don't think these guys can stop me from doing it. I, you know, I, so I, it, it's, it's got to be very reassuring in a way. However, I do think he'd rather find the balance, uh, yeah. uh, uh, you know, of the big hitting, and, you know, and, and the, the, the power, you know, the easy power that he's got. You know, you know sometimes I don't even see it coming, but he, that, that forehand can be devastatingly potent at times. And two-hander, you know, down the line is also a big weapon. So I just feel like it's not necessarily the way he – the, the the plan was never plan A, but that he always feels like plan B will work. And, the, and to him, the bottom line is I must win. And I don't care what I have to do to win. I will do it. And it doesn't have to look pretty either. And, and he's, he's proven that. But I did think it was nice that we saw a flourish. I thought somewhat of a flourish at the end of the Berrettini match. And I did think also the third set against Chapavala, he would he was, he was better than he was the first two for sure. And he could have won it a bit sooner. Dennis saved himself a few times in the third from breaking points down. So I, I feel like we were, we've gotten flashes of it. And, uh, but maybe in New York, we're going to get more than that. Yep, I, I agree. The key, when, when you have a player like Djokovic and Berrettini sharing the court together, Novak is so comfortable from any position a defensive position, a neutral position, an offensive position. And for a guy like Berrettini, he really needs to be on his front foot. He needs to be in the offensive position dictating. And that's a lot of pressure. I, I think Djokovic has a freedom on the court. He, can, he, he doesn't care what position he's put in. He can kind of be free-flowing like that. But Berrettini, I can't let it get to my backhand. I can't, I can't get on the run. I need to be in charge at all times. It creates a dynamic that's very favorable for a player who's built this, this incredible all-around, all-court game like Djokovic. Yeah, no, all true. Now, you also probably heard Novak, Gil, saying after the, after the final that he feels he's a more complete player than ever before. That We shouldn't leave that out of the discussion. For instance, against Shapovalov, he it very selectively but did a great job serving and volleying wide to the Shapovalov back end in the deuce court, knowing it was going to be a chip return down the line, closing in for what he knew was going to be a backhand volley every single, almost every single time. And I thought he made, he used that play beautifully. He made a couple of incredible half volley, one great half volley in the final against Berrettini, just brilliant, and some great low volleys along the way. I think. Stan Smith was talking about this again in Newport, how he, and we saw it actually on the television, on the broadcast, Stan talking to Novak when he came into the, right after the final to greet people. And when the cameras come take you backstage inside the building there. And Stan was really impressed with the improve, improvement in Novak's volleying. So there's that element as well, you know, attacking yeah. at the right. We're never going to see him coming in a ton, but he did it opportunistically also he did it very well against Berrettini who missed a few critical passes when chances to break back in the third and fourth but the fact was that Novak put the pressure on him too so I think he is right about that he's more complete and I think yeah. that's also that fuels him as well knowing that he has 
basically to, to, to follow up on what the, your analysis, he's got more, a wider range of options than he's ever had before. When I look at this season, for me, Australia was very much about the serve. And that's what I left the tournament thinking about. And then Roland Garros was very much about the forehand, especially when it comes to his win over Nadal and how well he used it cross court. And this tournament I thought was about the volleying uh, because yeah. that's where, where he was able to finish points on, on such a consistent basis. It was so solid up there. Yeah. All couldn't, couldn't agree more with all three. He put a lot of emphasis on the serve. The court was playing pretty fast in Australia. It was a key to his win, especially over Medvedev in the final, which frankly was his best match of the Australian open was the final of the five, two and two. And, he served really well, and you must do that. To beat Medvedev by the scores, you have to serve really well because the guy's standing so far back, and he prides himself on his ability, ability to get returns back into play. And Novak was hitting those great serves down the tee that were completely stifling uh, Daniel, who was pretty frustrated in his inability. They weren't always aces, but they were service winners. And no doubt that was the leading feature of his game. And, yes, against Nadal, cross-court forehand, to take Rafa off the court on his two-hander was so effective. And uh, that and, and that made a big difference. And he hit the forehand really quite well the last three sets against Tsitsipas as well. It was yeah. another key as he turned that match around. So I agree. And then, But then, as I said, and as you are agreeing with, you know, the volley at Wimbledon was really one, one of the keys. And it was really nice to see him take. And also the transition. Some of the backhand approach shots, he kept so low. He really kept them low, and and even a few off the forehand too. Sometimes he'll come in off the forehand, and it'll sit up a bit and give the guy a chance to really have a good look at the pass. He wasn't doing that at Wimbledon. He was really using the surface to his advantage beautifully, and I suspect he'll take advantage of the conditions as they present themselves in at the U.S. Open as well. We'll see a mixture of all of the things we're discussing now. It, it sounds like you think he has a chance to have his best season ever. And I mean, obviously he's, he's well underway. He has more titles than losses. And if we're looking at the losses, they, they don't come at the majors. They are uh, uh, Belgrade and Monte Carlo. And then one more that I'm forgetting. Rome, Rome to Nadal in the final. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now Rome is, is important, but the fact was Rome was one of the keys to his year, by the way. He did not like the way he was playing on the clay. And you mentioned Belgrade and Karatsev beats him. That was surprising because he'd handled him in the Australian. He, he knew how this guy played. He'd killed him in Australia. And he shouldn't have lost him in Belgrade. He was tight as a drum there. And the, and the Monte Carlo loss to Evans was one of his worst performances of the year. Uh, but when he started to play better in Rome, when he beat Tsitsipas there in the quarters in a, in a rain-delayed match, dark rain, darkness, onto the Saturday, beat Tsitsipas, and then made the final, beat Sonego to get to the final and played Rafa tough for three sets. That's when he knew he was ready. He really was very, you know, he was very encouraged by how his game was coming round. And then that led to the French win, which of course led to the Wimbledon win. Yeah. Yes, I do think so, Gil. I think whatever happens in the Olympics, I think the key to him, because I think historically he could survive a loss in the Olympics. He'd be disappointed because he, how much he cares about his country but I think for historical purposes, the one that matters more is, is the Open. And he could, you know, if he didn't get a Golden Slam and had to settle for a Grand Slam, I don't think that's still going to separate him significantly from both Rafa and Roger. Because Roger, you know, you think about it, the one year that Roger won the French in 09, he had already lost to Rafa in the Australian Open final. So there was no chance 
for him to win a Grand Slam. He did win Wimbledon and lose the Open final to Delpo. So he never really got close to it. And Rafa has not been either because he's only got his one Australian in 09. And then he lost his Soderling in Paris. So his chances for a Grand Slam were over. So they've really never been near it. And here's Novak now with, with a, a wonderful opportunity. And I just feel like he's, he's, he's at the right place mentally, emotionally. There's a maturity about him now, the way he talks about himself and his tennis and his goals and, and his dreams. And I, so, I, yeah, I do feel like he'll get at least one of those two. Very likely could get them both because the field in the Olympics is a little depleted. As you know, Berrettini is now pulled out. There's no Rafa. There's no Roger. I think we're going to have probably the two biggest threats might be Sitsipas and Medvedev, but Sitsipas has just come up a loss to Krajinovic and, and uh, you know, maybe his confidence isn't too high having lost to Francis Tiafo in the first round of Wimbledon. So he's still trying to kind of get the confidence back that he built up in reaching the Roland Garros final. And then Medvedev is a little bit shaken by having lost to a Sitsipas in the quarters of the French. And then this surprise loss to, Herkosh at Wimbledon when he thought he had him and the match got carried over to the next day and he and he and he ended up losing and so uh, it, it was jarring for him to lose in five sets there so he's he's questioning himself a bit as well so there is the chance that Novak again he doesn't necessarily have to be at his very best in Tokyo but he could still well come away with it but I think either way I do like I guess what I'm saying either way I do like his chances in New York as long as he's not too drained by too many big events in a short span. Yeah. Yeah. F fatigue is going to be interesting to watch. And I think in the case of the Olympics, volatility of best of three up until the final is, right. is right. an obstacle. If, if you're comparing that to, to a major where you get a little bit more uh, leeway. Yeah, uh, I agree. And I think he's going to have to put a, you know, he's going to, there's going to be an all out intensity in the first sets of these matches, you know, to make yeah. sure he, secures the first set and gets himself in a winning position early because you don't want to be fighting back from a set down if you can help it and have you know having to win tough long three setters from having been down so yeah it, it, you're right it, it's it's a format that doesn't work quite as well for him as best of five but it's also one where we've seen with all these masters 1000s what we know what he can do in best of three as well absolutely so so you just mentioned Tsitsipas and, and Medvedev and the disappointments that they had at the All England Club. I would also throw Zverev in there, losing to yeah. Felix Ojeali's team, who, who's a, a good player, especially when he's at his best on grass. But Zverev was uh, served, I think, 20 double faults, around 20 double faults in right. that match. Really was uh, nowhere near where he, he needs to be. So it's a lot of disappointments for, for that crop at Wimbledon where, uh, you know, the, a group of players who... Let me just interject a second. Forgive me for interrupting, but I do, I do want to quickly comment. Yeah, I could, I, I totally agree. I thought coming into Wimbledon, Zarev was going to be the finalist against Djokovic. I really did. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, we, we've been seeing this improved, his improvement in the majors, where he came so close to winning the U.S. Open last year and you know, up two sets, later served for the match in the fifth against team, loses a heartbreaker, but still comes back and, we saw him in, uh, have a good Australian losing to Novak in the quarters and a good French losing in the semis there to Sitsipas after having taken the match from two sets down into a fifth. So you felt like, okay, his, his Grand Slam performances are steadily improving. And I thought the stage was set, set well for him where the draw was right and he might have had to play Berrettini, but he beaten Berrettini in the final of Madrid on the clay. And 
I liked the way he was looking coming in. That was a disappointment. That was a blow to him. No doubt about it. Yeah. I'm assuming he will go to Tokyo though. I'm assuming that we'll see him in Tokyo. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it, it was look, he, I don't think he has addressed the second serve thing. I think clearly now he hasn't, but even against Berrettini in the Madrid final, there were some very untimely double faults that he hit. And that kind of reminded me, even though he won that final, that that's not behind him. But in, in all, uh, in summation, do you think that there's a grass issue with the younger generation? Or do you think it's just one tournament, small sample size, just a coincidence, and you know it'll be business as usual for them eventually at Wimbledon? Uh, more the latter, because I feel like we're not talking about the same brand of grass court tennis we had back in, in prior generations, certainly in the Sampras era where there's so many serving volleyers and the likes of Becker and Krejcik and Rafter and all the tough attacking players that Pete had to face in his years of winning seven titles. So I, I you know, and, and the same thing with the preceding generations. It was an attacking player's surface. And it was shocking in some ways when, Agassi won the title and nobody thought saw that coming. He'd been destroyed by Courier in 92 in the French semis. And he comes out and wins Wimbledon, beats Becker, McEnroe, and then uh, Ivanisevic in order. Three great attacking players in a row. And he mows them down on the grass and wins the title. And that wasn't, and he wasn't really changing his game. He was playing his, his Agassi style of backcourt tennis. And so in those days, that was kind of as I say, it was something of a shocker, but it's changed now. There's more of a sameness to the surfaces in, in the way people play. So that's why I say it's more the latter scenario that you're bringing up and that these guys will, they'll get there. They'll get there. It's just that right now they, they don't have the belief yet on big occasions either. Part of it is just that like Sitsipas couldn't be too secure, even up two sets to love against Novak in the Roland Garros final. And Berrettini up a set in Wimbledon and highly charged it, and he wasn't ready and Stefanos wasn't ready in Paris but these guys will eventually they're they're going to get there I have confidence and then I hope Zarev is going to do himself justice Gil I really do I think he's a great player and even with these ongoing issues that you alluded to with his second serve and what to do with it and how hard to hit it and what kind of spin to use and how to avoid double faults he and he has one of the great first serves in the game today. One of the very best. He's got a just a, a magnificent two-hander. His forehand, to me, look, is so much better than it was a few years ago. I thought it could go off much more easily. I have more. I, I don't feel he's going to give away nearly the number of points he once did off that side. So I feel like that's been shored up. And yes, he may can, he may have to struggle the rest of his career somewhat with that second serve issue. But I, I just hope it's not going to get too much in his way because he's such a such a great player. Yep. Yep. I, I, I agree with that. Um, although I, I just kind of wish that we saw more movement, um, more adjustments like we've seen with, with Djokovic and Nadal and, and how much they have tinkered and really worked at, at improving that shot. And Zverev served to me has looked pretty much the same his entire career. And I would have liked with the struggles he's had to just see him try something a little bit different. Yeah, I wish that Lendl had stayed in his corner, frankly. I, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I wish he had kept Lendl in his corner. It really wasn't Yvonne's decision because I think that's something, I think he's so smart and I think that he would have found, he would have had a clear-eyed solution to this and might have been able to get a message through to, 
to Sasha, but so far nobody else has. And it, it is a shame. It is a shame. It shouldn't be occurring. And it's, it's been a real hindrance to him. And it was once more against Felix, but that was such a waste. He was up four, two in the first set of and second set of that match. He lost both sets and he came yeah. back and took it into a fifth. He's down a break. He gets the break back. And I still remember after he'd broken back in the fifth and, held on for three, two, the, you know, he'd had a nice little stretch there and, and Brad Gilbert and Pam Shriver doing the commentary was kind of giving their own numbers on what they thought the percentages were of, of, of uh, Sasha winning the match. And they were very high and I didn't blame them for feeling that way at that moment, but he did. He, I hate to say it. He found a way to lose that match and that's not taking nothing away from Felix, yeah. but it also was one of the shortest press conferences on record it was there of talking about it afterwards. I have to say, that's a side of him, oddly, that I like, is that he's disgusted with himself when he loses matches that he could win. Uh, he, he won't tolerate it. He won't rationalize it. And he makes it clear that he's not there for that kind of a loss. He's there to win. So I think he has, a, to a degree, he has the champion's mentality. Now he's got to go out and prove that he's worthy of these, these honors. Yeah, interesting. Um, okay, let's say uh, let's go to Federer. We we nailed it, Steve. On the on the last one, we said eh, I think quarters. I think quarters might be uh, where we might see him go down, and uh, and that's what happened, which is you know a, a totally a totally fine result as well as you know I thought he looked really good against uh, both Cam Nori and Lorenzo Sanigo, who are both players who are top fifteen in the race, and. These are difficult players to beat. Federer did so pretty comprehensively, but then the way things turned against Hercotch and the way he lost that third set, losing at six love was uh, I think a shock to his system. And I think uh, a shock to, to a lot of observers and, and fans alike. Um, does the way he lost change the way you think of his future end is the fact that he's now come out and said, I, I have a knee injury that I have to take care of. Does that change the way you look at the Hercotch match? A little bit. It makes me think that par perhaps that's what was going, that the third set, I think he was trying to be, to not come off like somebody blaming his loss on the knee because he said, I heard it during the grass court season. It was a problem during the grass court season. So what are we to read into that? I have to believe that he was not happy with how he was feeling in the third set. It didn't look to me like he wasn't trying, but he wasn't performing well at, at all. And you knew that he was disappointed that he couldn't uh, take advantage of having a break lead in the second set and looking like he was on his way to one set all and then playing a very shaky tiebreaker. So all of those are factors. But no, I think it's kind of a, it's somewhat bleak picture in the sense that look, look what happened this year, Gil. He had two knee surgeries last year. He comes back, plays the one hardcore tournament, then realizes he's got to go back to the practice court. Well, why? I guess he still didn't trust the knee. I, you would have thought he would want to keep going then. He didn't. Comes to Paris, he can get through three matches, doesn't trust himself to play a fourth. There was a lot of speculation about why couldn't he do this? Why couldn't he have defaulted at the end of the Kepfer match? Bottom line is he didn't trust himself for whatever the reasons to play against Berrettini there and go any deeper into the tournament or try to test himself physically anymore. Then he goes to the grass and, and said how disappointed he was in himself in the way that he performed in the third set against Felix, where he went down four love very quickly and lost at six, two. And then he comes to Wimbledon and he barely survives the Manorino match. It was very fortunate that Manorino had to retire and, uh, and not play that fifth set. And you're right. He looked pretty good 
against Nori. I thought it was a nice win. I thought Nori got started a bit late, didn't start playing his best until the third set. But still, Roger fended him off in the fourth, which was great. And then uh, Sanego could have played a bit better, but still, Roger played a really solid match. So, yes, it was there were some encouraging signs, but then he, he stepped somewhat into a different league against her. Herkosh was a guy that could hurt him more on that court with his big game and, you know, his aggressive style. He was more prepared to take advantage of a vulnerable Roger, which Roger clearly was. So my overall assessment is that he says he's coming back later in the summer. Uh, he, he want, That means he will not come in terribly well-prepared or confident into the U.S. Open. I mean, maybe he gets a tournament or two in, maybe he doesn't. But this stopping and starting is really is hurting him tremendously. Yeah. Uh, I, I, when I say hurting, I just mean you know, psychologically and the sense of getting on some kind of a roll and playing a bunch of matches and, and remembering what it's like to win and do things automatically, say, 3-4, 30, 40, 30, one set all, you know, and just step in and do what has to be done. So I just feel like it, this, it's got, the chances of him winning the open are just so small. And then the question, and then is, is he physically even hold up there? You would think the hard courts on the knees would be the very toughest of all the surfaces, tougher than clay and certainly tougher than grass. So I don't know, Gil, I'm not encouraged that he's going to end up playing beyond the fall. I mean, maybe they'll, maybe he'll, he'll surprise us. Maybe the knee will come around, but I'm sensing that there's a pretty good chance that he could retire by the end of the year. Okay. Um, let's take that in, into two parts. First of all, I completely agree with you about the stop starting it. it no, um, it will, if it continues, it will hijack his ability to really contend for titles. Uh, and I think there's no doubt about that. I would, I would remember 2019 where he looked, where he was playing such a high level at Wimbledon. And I think Steve, you and I both agreed that part of the reason for that was because he had a nice clay court season where he was able to, play a lot of matches, go deep in a bunch of tournaments. It, he didn't need to win them, it's, but it's not really what it was about. It was just about getting that rhythm. And that led to this very confident grass court season. And you don't get one without the other. Yeah, absolutely. And that included a semifinal appearance against Rafa in Paris. And now yeah. they played on a very windy day and he got beaten badly. But the fact that he'd been in the semis was just what he needed leading into Wimbledon. Just what he needed. Yeah. No, I agree. Now, right now, this is too disruptive. And I say that sympathetically because nobody, nobody can survive this kind of a schedule. And, you know, he knows he's very conscious of turning 40. I mean, he doesn't feel he's an old man, but he, he's not kidding himself about this, his age and what it all, what it all means. So I don't know. It's hard for me to, to, to I, I just feel like if they're going to, if the doctors are going to tell him, or if it's going to be apparent that he can he can't last too long without re-aggravating the knee then what's what's the point of going on now that's I could be totally wrong maybe we're going to see a resurgence he comes back the knee comes round but I, I'm, I I have a hard time seeing that happening on hard courts with the type tough physical matches he's going to have to play yeah on on the retirement front if he can't stay on the court healthy that's, that's one thing. And that, that I think certainly will or would end things before he really wanted to. Um, but I also don't think that a loss to her in the quarterfinals at Wimbledon, I don't think that would be enough. Uh, I think that, you know, that in itself wouldn't be nearly enough to shake the, the long-term belief that Roger would have in his own abilities 
And I think it might take, if he's going to be healthy, I think it, it might take many, many, many losses before he decides, okay, I cannot compete at the level that I want to compete at anymore. So right now, I, I don't, I'm not really bracing myself for, for a fall retirement. I think that, I think he gives it a go in 2022. Uh, but of course, you know, if, if he can't get, if he can't stay on the court, it's kind of a different story. See, that's the big if. You're right. I would agree with you if I had confidence that the knee was going to hold up. But based on what I, I've seen this year and what he's told us, and to play that first tournament, and 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 you know, he he he, he beats Dan Evans. That wasn't bad. He loses to Bachelishvili, but then you figure, okay, you going the next week, Roger? No, can't do it. I got to go back to the practice court. So that's a, that was a sign that he did not trust the knee in more hard competitive conditions like that. And then all the things that happened. And the fact that the French, he just didn't feel he could go that extra match. And the fact that he tells us after Wimbledon that the knee was a problem again during the grass court season. Now that was a little vague, but it tells you that maybe it was more than one day or one match. And so I, I, I just weigh all that and I say, how is it going to get better? It, it would be remarkable if it did get better during the hard courts late in summer or even if he's necessarily ready by the U.S. Open. I hope, I hope he is, but if, if he is ready, if, if he does start playing, say, just play Cincinnati and comes into New York, I don't know. It's hard to, and I, I worry that there's probably a few more guys that could pick him off at the open than, than was the case at Wimbledon. Well, since we've discussed Federer and, and Djokovic's prospect heading into New York, let's pay it off with the third man at 20 Grand Slam titles right now, with, which is uh, Rafa. How do you uh, how do you see his chances and where he's at? Obviously, coming in very mindful of his schedule and carefully kind of crafting his his schedule to hopefully peak at the U.S. Open, sacrificing Wimbledon and the Olympics in order to do that. And now he says his first event is going to be the City Open, which means instead of playing, I believe, instead of playing Canada and Cincinnati back to back, he'll play Washington rest then cincinnati then the u.s open so so he's clearly i think making an extra effort to feel fresh for new york yeah i see it somewhat like you not completely i think what he's going to do is obviously we know washington i think he's going to go to canada and skip cincinnati because cincinnati's been the one that he hasn't i could listen it's possible either way it depends on what the results are in washington but I feel like he's certainly not going to, we certainly agree he won't play both of those. It, it, yeah. There's one more tournament after Washington, whichever one it is. It's a good sign, Gil, that he decided to play Washington, that he didn't need more time, that he was anxious to get back out and compete. So it tells me that the time that he took off at Wimbledon and, and not going to the Olympics, all that, that he's, there's an eagerness and there's maybe there's some inner confidence too that, and he's thinking of 17 and 19 when he won the Open you know, in 19 when he also won in Montreal leading into the Open. So I feel like it's going to be a very interesting stretch to see how he performs because there's guys in that Washington field that on a given day can beat him, the likes of Zarev. I think Zarev's in the field. And it's not going to be an easy win just because it's a 500. So we'll see how he looks in those tournaments. I suspect physically he's all right or he wouldn't be entering. And it's going to be a fascinating period to see if he can get a title out of one of those two tournaments and come into New York confident that maybe this is another odd year for him, 17, 19, 21, to, to win in New York. I mean, it's, it's, it's still 
the odds are still against it given Djokovic's dominance, but Rafa's obviously trying to get himself in peak form for the U.S. Open and try and win a fifth title there. It's been a while since I've been this excited for a major. Part of it is the big three all being at 20. I think part of it is, is just having full crowds in, in the fullest capacity. Part of it is probably a bias that I have just towards New York and the U.S. Open. Um, but I'm curious if, if you feel the same way. Well, the same way in what sense? Well, I, I, this is the, more, the most hype I've felt leading up to a meeting. Oh, no. Couldn't agree more. And I think mainly because of Djokovic going for the Grand Slam. We haven't had that since Labor actually did it in 69. We haven't had a guy since then come to New York with three. You know, there were years where Borg would come to New York in 78 and 80, for instance, he'd come, but the schedule was different. Australia was at the end of the year. So he'd won the French in Wimbledon, was trying to get the U.S. that would then lead him to Australia to go for the slam, and it never happened. He never won the Open. But there was a lot of anticipation of Borg coming to New York looking for number three to then go for Australia to complete the slam. So this is that that's obviously the chief story. But you're right. There are the other stories as well, and certainly Rafa, and how is Roger going to look? And listen, it, it, that, that'll be a really interesting to see because you're painting the other picture with Roger. You know, you're talking about 2022 based on healthiness. Because I, I do agree with your point that the Hercosh loss, like psychologically, he, that, that, that doesn't shake him. He feels like, okay, he beat me. I wasn't feeling at my very best. So I still got to the quarters here. I still had a chance to make it once. So under different circumstances, I might have won that. That doesn't. He, it's all about the knee to me. It's entirely about the knee, but that's going to make this a very interesting open. And then of course, there's the other cast of characters, the Medvedev, Medvedev people were calling two years ago and another good, another good open last year and Zarev coming back to try to get it and team trying to defend. And there's a lot of best on hardcore. Yeah, right. It's, it's a, there's a lot of great storylines for the men. And then of course, for the women as well. I mean, we, it could potentially be Serena's last real bid to get number 24, you know, last serious bid. I mean, who knows what she's going to decide to do. I think there's a good chance she goes on and plays next year, but it's been rough on her and getting hurt at Wimbledon like that didn't help. And, you know, if she were to take a jarring loss in New York and maybe suffer another injury, which hopefully will not happen, or she just gets beaten, period by somebody unexpectedly you know who knows how that affects her decision making for the future so there's a lot of interesting possibilities in new york it, it, and also the crowds will be back it's yes. going to make it, a, it i mean i think it was a remarkably good open despite the silence last year the eerie silence in those stadiums but it'll be nice to have you know euphoric euphoric fans back in those seats and cheering the players on and and hopefully ra even raising their standards to greater heights Absolutely. Well, um, hopefully, uh, I think we, we will see each other between then, but uh, we'll also catch up afterwards. Um, pleasure uh, com completing the, the channel double with you, Steve, in, in 2021. Uh, a great pair of tournaments, and uh, I always look forward to this, and uh, really glad we could do it again, despite me not having any of my, uh, none of my equipment out here in Chico, California. <laughs> Oh, it's all right, Gil. It was great as always. I liked it. It was a fun discussion. We covered a lot of ground. and I look forward to our following up on uh, after the U.S. Open. And who knows, maybe we'll be talking about Novak Djokovic and the Grand Slam. So it, whatever happens in New York, we'll have a lively discussion after. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve.
Thank you, Gil. All right. Oops. Okay. Got it? Yep, got it. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.